You know, um, sometimes I feel, and I know I do this, sometimes I feel like I say the same thing every week. You guys ever find yourselves in spots where you kind of do the same thing and, and uh, you just end up saying the same thing because what else is there to say? <laughs> but I do really mean it, that it is good to be together. It is good to see all of you. Even if I say it all the time, I hope it's no less significant. It's not something that I take for granted that we're able to gather together and worship and, and sing and hear the word. It really is good for our hearts and for our souls. So thank you for prioritizing this time together in worship. This morning, as we go through the book of Ephesians now, we come to chapter 6 and verses 5 through 9. Now, since we started this book uh, in September of 2020, I've read it many, many, many times. And every time, mostly, that I come to this section and I kind of look ahead, you know, how is this going to go and what's the preaching schedule and all this kind of stuff, sometimes I would read this and go, huh, I wonder how this is going to go. You know, because it is an interesting passage and maybe it's not immediately relatable to you or you don't see some direct connection for this text. But I was very, very encouraged this week looking at this and I, I saw a couple of things here that I think are going to encourage your heart and I want it to be helpful for your walk with the Lord. Paul is continuing his instruction that he started earlier by saying, don't be drunk with wine, this is chapter 5, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit, and then the instruction that follows are examples of how these believers in Ephesus and us by extension are to conduct ourselves, how to live, not being influenced by other external things, but being primarily influenced by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So this is the instruction that continues now in a specific application of this broad, be filled with the Spirit instruction that he started in chapter 5. So my plan this morning is to look at these five verses, verses 5 through 9, and explain a little bit of what I think is going on, and then I want to draw your attention to what I think is the main point here. And there's obviously application for, uh, you know, being in an employment situation or something like that, I don't think that's the primary thing we should get from this. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But when I was looking at this, the thing that encouraged me perhaps the most was what I'm calling the indiscriminate effect of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that there is no person, no situation, no circumstance in which the gospel of Jesus Christ does not or cannot take effect. You follow me? Paul's addressing slaves and slave owners means that these people who formerly or currently found themselves in this position have been or are being transformed by the power of the gospel. What an encouragement to us. And that is what I think is the main point of this. We're going to see that hopefully as we go through. So if you haven't done so, open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. It's also an exciting morning because I get to turn the page in my preaching Bible. You guys know this excites me. Every time we get to turn a page, it's pretty cool. So follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Would you pray with me as we start this morning? Father, I come to you humbled and very thankful for yet another opportunity to open your word with these brothers and sisters. Thank you for preserving us through another week. Thank you, Lord, for the myriad of things that you have undoubtedly kept us from and for the various things that you have strengthened us through in this past week. Thank you, Lord, for the effective power of your gospel. And thank you that there is no one that it cannot reach. And I pray this morning as we look at this text and gain insight from your word that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and teach us. Open our understanding, Lord. Help us to see what is really here through the eyes of our heart, not not just our physical senses or understanding or discernment, but Lord, please come and be our teacher and help us to see what you want us to see and then to live our lives in the confidence that the Bible is true The gospel is real and effective, and would you give us strength to do that, Father? So we commit this time to you and ask that you would be pleased in our worship. And I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Before we start going through this, I want to draw your attention to something, and that is that what we see when we read the word slavery might be different than it was in Paul's day. There are some marked differences in Roman-era slavery and what perhaps you or I would think of when we hear the term slaves or slavery. And I want to just mention a few of these because it's going to be helpful for us as we look at the context into which Paul is writing. Okay, so this isn't superfluous information. This is relevant for our study here. A couple differences of what is going on in Ephesians and maybe what we would think of. First of all, In Paul's day, slavery was not related to or associated with race exclusively. That was not the determinant factor. It was not as if if someone was a slave, you could tell because they looked a certain way. That was not at all the practice that was going on. There were three main groups of people that were generally made up in the slave market. These would have been primarily the biggest group was prisoners of war. As the Roman Empire grew and expanded and was practicing conquest over these nations, they would take prisoners of war, and as a source for revenue for the government, they would sell them in the market. So a large majority of slaves were prisoners of war. Another opportunity for this, or another possibility, was that people would put themselves willingly into slavery to pay a debt. If you had a debt you could not satisfy, indenturing yourself to somebody else was one way that you could either pay that down or pay it off. So there were people who put themselves into this situation so that they could satisfy an obligation or a debt that they owed. And also, thirdly, there were people who were just stolen, kidnapped by slave traders for money and would sell them as property and as slaves. And so, of all of these things, there wasn't this common 
racial background necessarily or ethnic background. It was simply circumstantial, which is a bit of a difference from what we might think of. Second difference was that for the most part, in Roman-era slavery, a slave could expect to be freed at some point in their life. So, not that this happened all the time, but it was common enough to be recorded in history that occasionally the masters would pay their slaves a sum of money for maybe doing an exceptional job or something like this. Not always, but the slaves would save that money and then be able to buy their freedom from their master. So that was one interesting thing, that they could almost expect it. I wouldn't say expect totally, because they were slaves, and they didn't do what they wanted, they did what their master wanted. But it was common enough that this is one of the main differences in these two pictures of slavery. Third, is that in Paul's day, many slaves worked in specialized areas of service that they would receive training and education for. So a master might want his slave to do this task, and he would educate them for that, or train them for that. That was almost unheard of in the antebellum South, or with American slavery as we know it. Education was not encouraged. In fact, it was prohibited many times. So what I, what I don't want you to see, I'm not trying to make it sound like this was better in, in Paul's day, like, oh, it really wasn't that bad. It was basically just like having a rough boss or something. No, it was slavery. They were owned. They were bought and they were sold as somebody else's property. But there are differences in how they functioned and how they lived and how they performed their duties that I think have some relevance to what we're talking about. And it is into this context that Paul writes these instructions to slaves and masters. Now Paul is uniquely qualified to be able to write this because he's been in prison. He's stayed and lived with people who owned slaves. He knows firsthand how this operates in the Roman culture. And so I think he's writing not just out of a vague understanding, but a firsthand understanding of what goes on, which makes the instruction that he's going to tell them even more significant. Because he knows. He's not writing to an unknown audience. I think Paul really knows what's going on. So a couple of differences, and see if that helps you now as we move through. So look at verse 5 with me as we begin. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. First point of significance, I think, is that Paul commands, he instructs these slaves to obey their masters. He does not say, okay, now that you're a Christian and you've come to Christ and the gospel has set you free from your sin, you don't have to obey anymore. That's below you. You're, not, you're a child of the king. You can... No, he doesn't say that. He says you need to obey. You need to obey your earthly masters. Maybe you've heard this uh, with someone in, in military or law enforcement service where they say sometimes you salute the rank, you don't salute the person. You ever heard something like that? What that means is that no matter how a person individually conducts themselves, there is respect or honor given to the position because of its authority or placement or whatever. I think Paul is saying something similar when he instructs these slaves. He instructs them to obey their masters with a deep respect. 
Not just because of the way they conduct themselves, not if they're only fair or if they're just or whatever, but what's his primary motivation? Look at verse 5, as you would Christ. This is Paul's motivating factor. And they should do this with a genuine or sincere heart. Paul's consistent teaching through the book of Ephesians has been that a heart that is changed by the gospel of Jesus is going to produce actions that are also changed and attitudes and motivations. We've we've seen this all the way through, right? And I think that's what he's getting at here. Now this is very counter to the culture. You can imagine slaves sitting in the gathering of believers, hearing this letter read to them, knowing that this comes from Paul. Maybe some of them knew him. And they sit in there kind of rolling their eyes and going, oh my word, does he even know what we're going through? And he's telling us to obey with sincerity? Yeah, he did know. That's why I said that earlier. He knows exactly who he's writing to, and he knows exactly what he is writing and why he is writing it. So interesting to me that Paul does not say, okay, now that you're a Christian, just let it all go. You don't have to do that. No, he calls them in the position that they're in to be obedient as they would obey Christ. Next, verse 6, he says they are to obey not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Maybe your translation says something like not serving for attention or uh, to be seen. The point here is that oftentimes a slave works hard when the master's around. You want to avoid negative consequences. You want to get a commendation or something like that. Then as soon as his back is turned, you become lazy. Paul is saying that's not how it ought to be with you. New heart, new behavior. So serve not just to get noticed, not just to try to get some kind of accolade for yourself, but serve as you do Christ. The the standard of conduct for Christians is higher. Whether you are a slave, whether you are a master, does not matter. As he's going to say, there is no partiality with God. But there is a standard of conduct for someone who has been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're supposed to work hard, not just when it's seen, not just when it's noticed, but when it's unseen and unnoticed. Their primary identity is no longer just a slave to an earthly master, but what does Paul say? As bondservants of Christ, slaves of Christ. That's their identity. That's who they're trying to please. And as such, they are to do the will of God, not their own will. It's striking, isn't it? It's very, very counter to what they had been taught, what they had experienced, maybe what they had grown up in, but this is the instruction that Paul has for them. This means then, this kind of conduct means that they are to, look at verse 7 with me, render service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men. Okay, Paul is telling these slaves, you are to serve in this way with sincerity, with respect to your master, with doing a good job, whether he's around or not. You are to serve in that way because you are not really serving men. Primarily, you are serving God. And God is the one who sees what you're doing and will reward or punish that. This is a tremendous principle. I think this is a game-changing principle for the people who are hearing this instruction. Imagine being a slave and hearing this instruction from Paul 
you're a new believer, you're trying to figure out what all this means and the implications of, okay, I've, I've been set free from sin and yet I'm still under this bondage. As a, as, I don't know what this means. And, and Paul comes along and in his instruction, he says to you, oh, by the way, you can best serve God by best serving your master. That seems a little odd, wouldn't it? We have to recognize this is so far removed from where we are and what we understand. You have to feel the significance of this. How absolutely different this instruction is from what they would have been taught or shown or heard. Let's say your master was cruel and unappreciative and constantly hounding you or whatever. Well, most people in that situation would back off. Right? They would just say, fine, I'm not even going to do it. He's just going to yell at me anyways. Paul says, no, not for you, Christian. You keep doing what is right. You keep working hard. You work as unto the Lord. He's giving them principles to live out this new faith that they have in Jesus in whatever circumstance they're in. This is the transforming power of the gospel. We're going to get into this more a little bit when we close. Next, Paul addresses the masters. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Paul is saying that many of the same traits, the same characteristics, the same attitudes and behaviors that he instructs these slaves, these bond servants to have, ought to be the same with the master's. He grounds that on saying that with God, it doesn't make a difference. That's what no partiality means. It means not showing favoritism to one or another. It means it's, it's level before God. And God requires and expects the same amount of obedience from masters and the purity of their conduct as he does from the slaves. Because they too are under someone else's authority. They are bondservants of Christ. Now, Jesus actually talked a little bit about this in Mark chapter 10, and I think Paul knows this. He's, he's picking up on what Jesus had said about how the Gentiles handle authority. Let me read this for you. This is Mark chapter 10. You can turn or just listen. Mark 10, 42. Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, his disciples, believers. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be doulos, slave of all. Same word Paul uses. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the normal structure of authority of a slave owner, of a master, was heavy-handed, tough, abusive, abrasive leadership, authority. And Paul comes into this context and says, oh no you don't, master. You are under Christ. You conduct yourself in the same way, with reverence, respect, honor. So we're called to as Christians. Paul says that God, who is in heaven, is both the master of the slaves and the master of the masters. Both. In one way, he's kind of leveling this by saying you're both under somebody else's authority. And you need to both conduct yourselves in a way, like verse 7 says, rendering good service with a good will 
as unto the Lord and not to man. Now, we, we just have to understand, I know I said this is really unusual teaching, but think about, there would have never, I think I'm confident in using that word, I don't think there would have ever been a situation where slaves and slave masters were in the same context receiving the same instruction. Very unusual because there was such a separation. Low, degraded, high authority, this, this difference, this, this span. And yet here they are in the church of Jesus Christ, both sitting next to each other just as you are, receiving the same instruction. Do you, do you get how unusual this would be? Why does Paul do this? Why doesn't he write a separate letter? And just address it to the, to the lower class because that's not how the gospel works. And he is promoting unity in the church. This has been his theme through the whole book. If you've been hanging around or you're familiar with Ephesians, you know that unity is an in-your-face kind of reality in the book of Ephesians. Primarily, Paul discusses the unity that exists between us and God because of what Jesus Christ has done. He talked about this in chapter 2. If you want to flip just a couple pages back to the left. Chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 14 um, through 16. 2, 14. Paul is saying about Jesus. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The reconciliation that Paul is primarily concerned with is that of sinful men to a holy God. And then he takes that reconciliation, that unity that exists, and he applies it to all of our horizontal relationships in the church, in the body of Christ. Unity has been the main theme here. And I think what Paul is articulating is that the blood of Jesus Christ that has this powerful, unifying effect on reconciling us to God, our Heavenly Father, is the same blood that makes possible horizontal unity to reconcile us to one another. And there was almost no bigger gap than slave and master. But Paul's promotion of unity in the church does not leave any stone unturned. He drives home this point in chapter 4 by saying that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And why? Well, he says because there is one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism, one Father of all, one, 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 one. It is unity that Paul is after, which is why he gives the instruction that he does here. We know just from Ephesians, think about this, what have we seen in Ephesians so far? Who was in the church? Well, we know at minimum there was children, husbands, wives, fathers, slaves, masters, Jews, Gentiles. That's a pretty mixed bag right there. But then what else? If we look at other writings of Paul's, we see that there were also simple people, Educated people, 
people of wealth and position, people of low estate, grandparents, uh, tradesmen, doctors. There was such a wide span of experience and background in the church. Why is that significant right here? Why would I bring that up? Why is it significant that in the church of Jesus Christ, there is such a variety of people? Here's what I think. I think that all the diversity that is in the church, by God's design, by the way, this is no accident, but the diversity that exists in the church magnifies the work of the Holy Spirit in producing unity in the church. Okay, big deal. If you get five people together who are all the same, all like the same things, all dislike the same things, you say, oh, look, we have unity. That's not unity. That's just a bunch of people who are the same. The church isn't like that. Just look at this room. Think of all the different and wildly different experience and background and and knowledge and, and personality and all that kind of stuff, and yet we are all here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God has done a work or is doing a work in your heart to promote coming together for the common good, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ being heard and preached and lived, which is exactly what Paul is driving at here. Unity in the body of Christ is what he is desirous of and what he is trying to promote in the church. I'm sure there was some awkwardness. <laughs> when, he, when they hear this letter read and there's, there's husbands and wives sitting next to each other and they're reading through this letter and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I'm supposed you know, it's got a little bit of elbow jabbing going on and this kind of thing, right? But think about what's going on in verses five through nine. The section that we just read here. Paul is addressing slaves and slave masters. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ through hearing the gospel and are now sitting next to each other in church with maybe decades of mistreatment and insubordination and abuse and whatever else existing between them and yet they are there not by their own work but by the work of God through his spirit promoting the unity in the church and also displaying for all the world to see the indiscriminate power and effect of the gospel. This is unbelievable. It is remarkable to me. Imagine if you were in this spot and you were, you were hopeless and, and downcast and, and you were looking for answers and you're looking for hope and you open the Bible just to find out that, oh, sorry, you're not the right kind of person. You, don't, you can't have the gospel. You weren't born into the right time or the right family or the right country or whatever it might be. There's no hope in that. But the effect and the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is indiscriminate, meaning that there is no pre-qualifying condition that you need to meet to be a recipient of the grace of God. It wasn't here and it isn't now. That is this big picture that I am seeing in this instruction, these verses. Because you just have to ask yourself, why is, he, why is he bringing this up? What is he doing? He's promoting unity. He's driving at the spirit-wrought oneness of the church for everyone regardless of background. There is so much hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know what this does for you right now? 
You can have confidence because of Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, that no matter who you talk to, the thing that they need is the thing that you have. You hear me? No matter what experience, no matter where God calls you, whether it is here or there, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that brings life and light and unity to the church of God. Now, it's, it's not that Paul is promoting or condoning slavery. I think it's significant that he does not say, okay, now that you're you know, saved and the gospel is coming, just, just get out of there. Just leave them. Who cares what happens? You're a Christian now. You don't need to do that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. I think that's significant. I think that's really significant. It's, he's not condoning this. He's not saying that I approve of slavery. In fact, he, he condemns slavery as a sin in 1 Timothy 1, alongside lying and homosexuality and murder, and, and in this whole list, he includes slavery in there. Paul is not a proponent of slavery, but he does know that the work and the effect of the gospel is not limited by something like slavery. And he wants to encourage these brothers and sisters, no matter what situation you are in, the Lord requires obedience of you and faithfulness to him. He's already dealt with this, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul specifically addresses what a person is to do with their, with their life when they come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm going to go and read this because it, I think it's very significant. This is 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to start in verse 17. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call, and by the way, call just means when you were saved. Okay, that's the word, that's, what, that's how Paul is using this here. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandment of God. Let each one remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Do you hear what he's saying? This is huge. Were you a slave when God called you? Then be faithful right there. Were you free? Remember that you are under Christ's leadership and authority now, but remain there. Don't try to just immediately kick the table over and try to change everything in your life. Be faithful where God has you. And I was just thinking about this in relation to our passage. I mean, are you, are you right now, you, Grace Bible Church, are you discontent where you're at? Do you feel that as a Christian, you should be farther along by now or, or higher up the ladder or have more promotions or, or whatever? Paul says, don't worry about that. God has you exactly where he wants you. Let each one 
lead the life to which you were called. That's what Paul says. God never makes mistakes, ever. And you are where you are right now because that is where God wants you, where he can use you. If you'll quit stiff-arming him and, and submit yourself to his will. Paul's big push here, I think, is be faithful where you are. Discontentedness is such a problem with our lives, isn't it? We just get so bored and so uh, antsy or or whatever word you want to use. I'm not not saying we should be lazy and not work hard and try to improve your situation. But there's a big difference between having a good work ethic and being impatient. And I think one of the things that we can glean from this is that God uses everybody no matter where they're at. Don't try to just change because you're bored, because you're discontent where you're at. You are where you are because God placed you there. More than that, Paul says God called you there. That is what he is calling you to do. So live a life of obedience to God and to his word no matter where you find yourself. God will honor that kind of faithfulness. So now let's go back to chapter 6, and I want to close by giving us some principles, some ways that we can work this in to our life. I said earlier that I don't think this is just a one-to-one translation for employment and employers and that kind of a thing. However, there are principles here, right? It's different. I mean, you are not a slave as an employee, and you are not a master as a boss, But there are definitely things that we can glean from this. So when I apply this, the situation that I have in mind is you are doing something for somebody else and you are being obligated or I'm not going to say forced, but it's required of you that you obey. How should you respond to that kind of situation? Now I don't mean something evil or or wicked or something like that. I just mean if you were in control, you probably wouldn't do this. (laughs) But you're not and you're being required to follow through and to submit to somebody else's direction. So as a Christian, based on what Paul has said here, how should you respond? There's a variety of circumstances. I'm not going to try to narrow it down, but I think there's for sure two that came to my mind. One is obviously employment, right, with, with, a, with a supervisor or a boss telling you what to do. The other one might be something like military service. If you're in the military, you don't have your own will, you do what your CO tells you to do. So something like that, okay? Some kind of circumstance like that. So I'm going to give you five principles quickly as we close. And hopefully you can hear where these are coming from, right from our text. Number one, treat your manager or supervisor with deep respect. We need to respect the position of authority that they have been placed in over you, knowing that all authority comes from God. That includes your direct supervisor, overseer. And we are to treat them with respect, even when it is difficult or uncomfortable. Number two, excuse me, do your work with a pure heart and a good attitude. Do your work with a pure heart and a good attitude. There are many ways in which you can obey the letter of the law, but do it with a rotten attitude. That's not the best way to honor God. I think Paul's instruction would be, do this with a pure heart. Don't just obey the letter of the law. Don't stiff arm things, but begrudgingly obey. The gospel has transformed your heart. The gospel should transform your actions. Okay? Number three, 
Do not perform only to draw attention to yourself. Do not perform only to draw attention to yourself. Christians ought to work just as hard when the boss is watching and breathing down your neck as you should when he's not even on the scene. Why? What does Paul say? Because we work primarily for God, not for men. Work hard, not just to draw attention to yourself so you get the accolade, you get the promotion, whatever. God will take care of that. Your responsibility is obedience and faithfulness. So work hard, even when he's not watching. Number four, let the will of God be the top priority in your life. Let the will of God be the top priority. Paul says that servants of Christ, which if you are a Christian, that's what you are. Paul says here that servants of Christ do the will of God. Therefore, our responsibility is to know the will of God as it is laid out in this book, the Bible, and to put that into practice in your work, in your life, in every sphere that you operate in. Doing the will of God from a pure heart. Fifth and lastly, remember that the Lord sees what we do. If you ever need a motivation for working hard, for using integrity in your job, for doing the right thing, even when, remember, God is watching. Paul says this at the end of our text. He who is both their master and yours and is in heaven, he sees what's going on and there is no partiality with him. God is not going to give you a pass because of your earthly position. He requires obedience from all of his children. So five things that can hopefully motivate and shape the way that we respond when we are under somebody else's authority, somebody else's direction. So two things. There's obviously practical implication, but I want you to see the main point of this, to me anyways, and hopefully you can see this. The implication is that the power of the gospel, and by gospel I mean the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world sacrificed himself, gave his own life so that sinful, unworthy people could come to know God and to be adopted into his family. That's the gospel in a very brief articulation. But that gospel is effective for every person, every class, every situation, every circumstance. So I want that to encourage your heart If you are searching, if you're wondering if this is for you, and I wanted to encourage you in your spread, in your sharing of the gospel, there is no one that you should shy away from. There is no person or situation that you should go, oh, they're they're not going to believe this. They're not, no, 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 no. The gospel is for everyone. And I want to encourage you as your pastor to get it. Recognize this. And let this text motivate you. If it can save these people, if it saved you in your sin, God can save anyone. I want it to motivate you. In a couple moments, we're going to come to the table and uh, we're going to sing before we come to the table. But I just want you to make this connection that if it were not for what we are going to celebrate here, if, if this never had happened, Everyone is hopeless. But because of this, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, what we read in chapter 2, that he has reconciled us to God by his blood, 
we now, as recipients of God's grace, have this privilege to not only benefit personally from the gospel and from the word of God, but to take that and, and, and share it. Talk about it, knowing that it is for everybody. So as, as we sing now and as we come to the table, remember. Remember that the gospel that was extended to you, the grace that was extended to you because of the sacrifice of Jesus is powerful and effective for everyone. And that is the best news that anyone can say or hear. Amen? Amen. Josh is going to come. I invite you to stand and we'll sing together as we come to the table.